Welcome to the third installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio magazine podcast. Ear to the Ground features interviews, reviews, news, and field reports related to sustainable agriculture, family farming, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm your host, Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. This Ear to the Ground wraps up a three-part series on living democracy. Activist and author Frances Moore LePay writes extensively about living democracy in her new book, Democracy's Edge, Choosing to Save Our Country by Bringing Democracy to Life. On November 18, 2005, LePay spoke at a special Land Stewardship Project fundraiser in Minneapolis. During her presentation at St. Joan of Arc Church, LePay discussed her new book and her pioneering work on the global issues of food, land, and democracy, as well as why there is real hope for progressive change. An earlier Ear to the Ground featured the first part of LePay's talk, where she focused on the problems with thin democracy. This edition is devoted to the rest of her talk, where she describes how average citizens can put living democracy into action. But you see, as I began this talk, I said that there are two things happening at once. And at this very same moment that thin democracy is, 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 is thinning and thinning and thinning as control as power consolidates in our own society and, and around the world and corrupts our political process. At the very same time, I believe that we are at a historic moment in which there is an awakening. There is an awakening because I think that we are the first generation on earth that can actually see that we are at the edge. If you've read Jared Diamond's book, Collapse, you know that there are many civilizations before us that have collapsed, but maybe who knows? We may be the first to really know that we are right at that edge. And so there are many people. And Anna and I, as we traveled, we were the privilege to see that this is happening on every continent. People are waking up. They are waking up. And they are, yes, they're, they're dis distinct movements, but there are some common threads. And one of those threads is people saying, no, wait a minute. Yes, I can act like a narrow, selfish little materialist. But I am much more complex than that. And that there are deep, deep needs that are not expressed. My needs, my values, my interests that aren't expressed through this assumption of thin democracy and its disdain for these deeper needs. And so what are they? Well, Anne and I, in our book, we, we boil them down to little rhymes, which is the human need to connect and affect. In other words, human beings, yes, we can behave in these very atomistic and selfish ways, but we also, we wouldn't have made it to where we are now if we didn't also have this deep need for real community, to connect in real community, not just by what brand names we're wearing, but through real knowing of one another and through common struggle. But we also have the need to affect, that is to be problem solvers. I'm convinced that human beings weren't if, you know, that we didn't evolve to be spectators, whiners, blamers, couch potatoes. We wouldn't have made it where we are if that was really reflective of our nature. And so I've been so intrigued and amused and gratified that now even the scientists and even some economists are coming around. But I, 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 I'm very amused to report that uh, scientists at Emory University uh, did studies looking at our brains, how we operate in competition and how we, how we operate in, how we experience competition and how we experience cooperation. And they said they were so surprised because when their subjects were cooperating, these parts of their brains lit up that are the same parts that light up when we eat chocolate. <laughs> 
And I was, I was just so amused that they were amused or they were surprised because I was thinking, well, how did they think we made it to where we are? In, in most of our experience, if you think back on what, what did you do today, what were the pleasurable parts of it? Uh, I bet besides eating chocolate, um, that one of those, or a lot of those, had to do with cooperating with people towards some common end. And I'm also struck, and so this innate need to bond in genuine community and to affect is, is, is innate. I was also um, very struck by, by uh, new research about our innate sense of fairness. And it turns out that not only uh, uh, Adam Smith, you know, Adam Smith is supposedly the godfather of greed, right? He's the one who told us that we could just turn over our hand to this magical, invisible hand. Actually, Adam Smith had a profound understanding of human psychology and spirituality, in a sense. And he talked about justice and said that, indeed, there are many social virtues that are optional, that we can choose to express friendship and charity. But he said there is one social virtue which is not. He said not optional. He said we are, let's see, how did he say this? Tied, bound, and obliged to the observation of justice. And I think what Adam Smith was getting at in his lovely language was that we know that without justice, our community breaks. So we are tied, bound, and obliged to it. And he also understood that we were innately capable of compassion. Adam Smith wrote, How selfish soever man may be supposed to be, there are evidently principles in his nature which interest him in the fortune of others, though he gain nothing from it except the pleasure of seeing it. That was the supposed godfather of greed. You know, actually I heard that in the Reagan White House they wore um, Adam Smith neckties. They were so adoring of this idea of this automatic market, but there is another side to Adam Smith. So I'm suggesting then that this innate sense of fairness on, oh, I was going to mention that now scientists are finding even other primates, capuchin monkeys, have an innate sense of fairness. They get really upset if the rations aren't distributed fairly and will throw them back at, the, at their caretakers care if they don't get fair treatment. Um, so I'm suggesting then that there are values in our being that we resonate with. Oh, even the World Bank, even the economists at the World Bank in their new World Development Report acknowledge, and they cite all these different studies, of course, and then they conclude, they say, we have, find, we have concluded that some people are not motivated simply by narrow utility maximization. That's the economist's word for self-interest. So even the economists are coming around. So what I'm suggesting is, is that these are precisely the needs for, to connect, to affect, to know that we live in fair societies that, it, that are denied in a thin democracy. And so it doesn't surprise me then that since those aspects of our being are denied in a thin democracy, and the thin democracy notions of ourselves is what we are pushing around the world, it does not surprise me that the World Health Organization now says that depression is a leading world pandemic, that it is now the fourth leading cause of loss of productive life. And in another 15 years, it is estimated to become the second leading cause of loss of productive life because there's such a mismatch between these needs we have 
to express these parts of ourselves and the dominant mental map. So what I'm saying then is that my notion of of living democracy emerging is, is tied into the reason I'm bringing up the sense of innate compassion and fairness and our, our desire to, to, as Eric Fromm, to use his quote again, his uh, language again, he talks about our need um, to not just be couch potatoes, but as he put it, uh, to make a dent. And he said, um, instead of, I think therefore I am, we should really say, I am because I affect that our need for efficacy, our agency, is that deep. So that is what is emerging as living democracy, building on those traits in us. And so what does it look like? Uh, I would say that you can't talk about living democracy as an ism, as a blueprint, because that's a violation of what living democracy is. It can only be told in stories as it is emerging and look for the principles or the guiding insights that are are surfacing in these practices that come through stories. And so part of these guiding principles for me, or these are guiding insights, have to do with two aspects of confronting and evolving thin democracy into living democracy. Number one, removing the power of wealth from the political process. And number two, infusing the power of democracy into the economic process. I want to just repeat that because it seems like much, not all, but much of what I see emerging as living democracy is evolving in this precise way. Removing the power of wealth from the political process and infusing the power of democracy into the political process. And so what does that really look like? Removing the power of wealth from the political process? I think a lot of Americans are pretty cynical about that. As we've seen attempts at campaign finance reform not look like reform at all. I think the last election, the presidential election, including the, the, um, the conventions were about a billion dollars were spent. But what is below corporate media radar is what is happening at the state level. And one of my favorite interviews in this book, Democracy's Edge, is with a grandma in Arizona, Marge Mead, who has, I think, eight children and a whole bunch of grandchildren. And she ended up in a League of Women Voters meeting, kind of fell into this meeting as a substitute. And it turned out she was the only one who knew how to take minutes because she knew shorthand. And so she said, that was my reincarnation as a political activist. And what happened in that meeting, they were talking about campaign finance reform. And she said at first she was very intimidated about all the nuances, but she got so excited about the possibility of getting money out of the system that she learned everything she needed to know to be effective and went door to door and talked to community colleges and church basements and became part of a successful campaign, clean elections in Arizona, that in only five years, because elections are now publicly financed in that, at that level, at the state, in the state, it means that voting has gone up a quarter and people running for office has gone up about a quarter because people feel that uh, they don't just have the best democracy money can buy, as Greg Pallas title of this book put it. So clearly that is one piece, but today I want to dwell on another piece. I want to talk about the um, infusing of democracy into economic life, and that is one of the aspects of my enthusiasm 
for the Land Stewardship Project because that's how I really see the critical importance of what they are doing. They, they're recognizing that there is no such thing really in, I'm putting words, these aren't their words. Blame me. But that I sense that there is really no such thing as a free market. As the head of Archer Daniels Midland said in the 90s, there's no grain of anything traded in the world in the free market. That exists only in the speeches of politicians. So there is either a fair market or an unfair market. And how do we create a fair market? And part of that is what I tend to think of uh, for want of better language, I'm always looking for better language, and that is creating the values boundaries within which we think the market can serve us as a tool rather than a tyrant that is destroying what we love. And certainly one of the things that people in Minnesota love is healthy rural community and healthy rural landscape. And so the, in part, through the large part, the leadership of the Loops Land Stewardship Project is showing the way that we can infuse the values of democracy into economic life. And so, as Mike alluded to, uh, I guess a year and a half ago, I sat at Little Oscar's Diner in the southeastern part of your state, and I heard from people who were acting from a values-based, say, values orientation about wanting to protect family farming for family farmers and wanting to protect their environment from big factory farm confinement operations. And so in the tiny township of Ripley, I have uh, been following what it means to people to stand up against uh, a lawsuit, against their township for standing up to resist a, what would have been the largest dairy confinement factory farm in the, in the state, I believe. And so I was so encouraged by listening to their story of regular people recognizing that some things are more important than simply commodity exchange, and one of them is rural, healthy rural community life. And it's not just up for the highest bidder. That we can protect the ordinances in a state here that allow townships to make decisions about what is consistent with their values. These are uh, rights that have been lost, I understand, in both Wisconsin and Iowa. So I was celebrating, along with Land Stewardship and many other Minnesotans, to learn that, in fact, after three years, for now anyway, it looks like this big dairy operation that was going in uh, to these folks, I, um, to, to the community in which these folks live that I met at Little Oscar's Diner, uh, that they have uh, been victorious by standing firm with the courage to risk criticism from their neighbors and to stand firm with their values. So as I think of, of um, the, what the Land Stewardship Project is involved in, it is certainly this, this notion that it is applying our non-market values, our deeper values, in economic life. And so for me, what the Land Stewardship Project is doing is not just about a distinct issue. Yes, sustainable agriculture and protection of the environment, protecting family farm communities, but it is also uh, reflecting this, I think, global movement toward living democracy that really honors people's capacity to act on their values in economic life. But there are many other aspects to uh, living democracy emerging as it is infusing economic life with democ democratic values. And part of that really is um, not buying into the notion 
that unfortunately I feel is being perpetrated uh, by, particularly effectively, by Thomas Friedman in the pages of the New York Times when he tells us, well, in his book, The Lexus and the Olive Tree, he says, there is no more chocolate chip, there is no more lemon lime, there is no more strawberry swirl, there is only North Korea and free market capitalism. So that's kind of scary. He's saying there are no choices, folks. It's either you go towards state control or you go toward this market system, which I've defined as ultimately under, undermining our, our humanity. So that's pretty scary. So the first thing that we have to do is to shed that defeatism and learn how to say no to that defeatist message, no with facts. And so I, I, um, I want to talk about briefly how, the, just allude to in the short time I have, to at the various movements that are saying, no, we do have choice. Um, just, just I'll throw in here, even at the level of, of big corporations, you know, all you read in the paper pretty much is that Walmart, which is probably a perfect example of what Thomas Friedman is saying is inevitable, right? That we've got to accept these low wages and we've got to whatever it takes to, to keep jobs. Um, it's so interesting to me that Costco, for example, pays uh, $5 an hour more and its labor costs are about 40% less uh, than, than Walmart um, because it doesn't have the turnover in large measure. So um, it's, it's, we, we, have to be, we have to be on guard against these, the myths that all of this is inevitable and we have to lie down before it. But there is a key aspect to what I see as, um, as this living democracy emerging in the economic realm, and that is the notion that every time that you and I shop, save, invest, that we are creating either the world in decline or the emergent world that it reflects our values. And I was very uh, struck, for example, to learn that uh, the social responsible investment movement, which was pretty much a joke on Wall Street, for people I know in that movement, they said even 15 years ago, if you talk to somebody on Wall Street about investing your money with a social conscious, they would pretty much laugh at you, that that was just not the way we do capitalism. But now, that which is invested with a social screen or social measure of some sort amounts to about $2 trillion, the combined GDP of Canada, Mexico, Italy, and that is just in within the last 15 years. And we know of what I call power shopping. <laughs> power shopping to me means that when we spend our dollars, we know the ripple effects of those shopping dollars. And uh, in that vein, I had the pleasure of meeting um, Alina Musayev, who was only a few years ago in a training session that Oxfam America put together. And uh, Lena was gathered together in Boston with others uh, wanting to know more about how they can live their values. And at this meeting was uh, uh, a group of Guatemalan farmers who came there to meet them, these students. And uh, Alina was a student at George Washington University. And that very night, after meeting the Guatemalan farmers and knowing, as many of you do, that in a three, recent three-year period, coffee prices plummeted by 50 percent 
And just in the last 10 years, the, the percent of the revenue from coffee sales that is remaining in the poor coffee-producing country has shrunk from one-third a decade ago to less than one-tenth today. It's, it's stunning. And so Lisa, Lena went back to her dorm room and talked to her roommate and said, why don't we bring fair trade coffee to George Washington University? And that was less than three years ago, and today there are 300 campuses because of what Lena's decision that night to bring attention to her choice and to the choices of coffee at her university. 300 uh, that have now, this fair trade movement that I'm sure many of you are part of, has now affected the well-being, the life chances of 800,000 coffee-producing families throughout the world, again, in, in a blink of historical time. But I'm also aware that part of living democracy emerging in economic life is the way that we organize our economic enterprise. And uh, many of us have come to think that, well, cooperatives are a nice idea, but they're not so practical. And I have to admit, uh, just to tell a bit of a story on myself, when I, in Viroqua, Wisconsin, in the late 1980s, met a few dairy farmers who were talking about putting together a co-op called Crop, I thought, oh, well, that's nice. And you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Organic Valley, which started, yes, with a handful of dairy farmers in Wisconsin and has grown to 750 farm families, still uh, very much participating uh, with monthly telephone calls, so they're kept in the loop and debating such issues as should they really offer soy products? And, uh, and now they are being able, still able to return to their family farmers, about 50% more than the current market price for their product, for a comparable uh, products. Um, so this notion that uh, democratically run cooperatives are possible is another way, and they are showing that it is possible, is another way that we can rethink that it's not about getting rid of the market, it is about infusing democracy into economic life. Um, another piece of this is, um, another piece of this is that um, um, what many call the local living economies movement, and many of you are part of that. The idea that studies show, there was an interesting study that I believe was used Austin, but in any case, a study showing that for every one dollar that we spend locally, uh, three more dollars circulates in our economy than, in it, than if we had spent our money at, you know, uh, uh, outside corporation where the profits went back to someplace in Arkansas. So I was, I was just in Austin, and I have to say, I almost, I've never almost danced through an airport. But I was told that in Austin, Texas, that all of the, the concessions are locally owned. And there were two live music uh, um, presentations going on in the airport from local artists. That's why I almost danced through the Austin airport. So local living economies uh, is another piece of this de living democracy emerging. So let me just conclude with two more arguments about living democracy that I've, I've sort of just begun to put together, and so bear with me. And I, I, 
here is what I, I'm really coming to understand, that maybe part of being at the edge, for the first time humanity can see that we are at the edge, maybe we could be the first also to acknowledge the truth about ourselves. And it's not the pretty truth that I've been asking us to focus on. It is really that the truth that we've seen in Auschwitz and Abu Ghraib, Pol Pot and Darfur. We, we might be the first of humanity to say, oh, you mean I could do those things? You mean it's not just some bad people who are capable of that? And you, many of you are aware of the experiments, for example, at Stanford, uh, Zimbardo did, in which ordinary tested for sanity students were put into a situation where some were prisoners and some were guards, and within six days the abuse was so intense that they had to stop the experiment. These were well-behaved, well-adjusted young people. And many of you are aware of the Milgram experiments where people, again, ordinary Americans, were any of these experimental settings were willing to inflict electric shocks. They believed they were inflicting electric shocks strong enough to cause death. So what does it mean then to reach this point where we can no longer say it's them, their capacity for evil, not mine? And I think it means then growing to, up to the point that we say that our first challenge then is to have the widest dispersion of power possible so that we are, none of us are incapable because we, none of us are put in that position of that kind of power over one another since we have to admit that it's not just them who is capable, we are all capable. And only, I believe, through a living democracy approach can we guarantee this wide dispersion of power because we are engaged in keeping it that way. I'm suggesting that thin democracy always leads to a concentration of power that leads precisely to the kind of rationale for abuse that is happening in our name today in torture centers in around the world. So this is part of our wake-up call to living democracy, to, to acknowledge that we are all capable and therefore we have to keep power so wide a dispersion, and the only way is to engage in a living democracy. And another piece of this, then, a very critical piece that, again, is just waking, I'm just waking up to this, is that what is among the greatest threats to the planet today is extremism of all kinds, particularly extremism that is calling for violence. But it's calling for violence out of very lofty vision of, of, of values. And I wonder, is thin democracy strong enough, compelling enough to actually cause to resist, uh, to, 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 to actually attract enough loyalty and commitment to stand up against extremism that is calling on transcendent and lofty values. Because in democracy, we know it disrespects us. It doesn't ask us. It doesn't involve us. It lies to us. Um, it, it is based, it, because it leads to such concentration, inevitably, it disrespects us. And so I'm suggesting that in this world in which there's a very real threat of violent extremism that is based, though, on very lofty words and concepts and visions of purity, that thin democracy can't hold a candle to that. 
can't call forth the loyalty and commitment and action that is required to resist that. And I believe only living democracy. Again, you can push back in our Q&A, but I believe that we need a secular vision, one that can include all faiths and all non-faiths, a secular vision that is at the same time transcendent because it is calling forth our better selves, our sense of compassion, our need for community, our absolute commitment and knowledge that our societies must be fair to function. And I believe that secular but transcendent vision is captured in this, in this vision of living democracy, that which you and I create, not something done to us, not something done for us, but that we create and we take responsibility for. So what is holding us back? What is holding us back? I believe that there's only one real thing holding us back. Uh, yes, the mystification of the mental map and all those things, but fundamentally, there is one thing deep inside us, and that is fear. And I believe that we are hardwired over eons of social evolution to, to respond with fear sensations when we know we have to separate from others because we know that our security as we evolved we are, our security was with each other and staying with the tribe. But what happens when we are in a moment in history where we are like the canoes heading over Victoria Falls, 400 foot drop. So staying with the pack in that circumstance is death for us all. So how do we gain the courage to know that separating, risking embarrassment minimally, risking uh, ridicule, risking humiliation, risking ostracization. Uh, how do we gain that courage? And I think that is the challenge. And I'm convinced that there's only one way, and that is by seeing others and by learning that fear does not have to stop us. It can be just a message, not a verdict that we are in danger, but it, just information that we have to register. And it might be that beating heart, that tight throat, that cold sweat, that watery knees, that might mean that we are exactly where we should be. And um, in fact, in my life, fear is very much a companion from time to time, as it was tonight when I couldn't print out my speech. Um, but you know what? Um, I have learned that, um, I know this may sound a little bit corny, but when I feel that, like that, that pounding heart, what I'm trying to learn to teach myself is to say, oh, that's that applause. <laughs> so I'm working on that. But so if we are to walk with our fear, not let it stop us, walk tall with our fear, it means that we all have to become better storytellers. So that the stories of people like the folks who resisted that dairy uh, 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 factory farm and stood up against a lawsuit to their township. That story gets told, it gets retold, so that others, you see, we are all social mimics. We, they're mirror neurons, that's the other thing that I'd love to know that the scientists are finding. We all have these neurons in our brains, so when you see me doing all these crazy things with my hands, they're actually neurons in your brain that are firing just as if your hands were flying around. So think about that in terms of how we each are social mimics 
and we, we learn from one another. So as we see others walking with their fear of dis difference, we learn that too. So we are at an enormous moment uh, of, of import, of enormous import, of moving in both directions at once. And as I say that, I will end with a story of perhaps, I have many, many heroes, but one of them I met in Africa in the year 2000. A woman who was the first PhD in biological sciences in East Africa, a woman who in 1977 planted seven trees on Earth Day to honor seven environmentalists. And she was laughed at when she went to the foresters and said, oh, the forest is encroaching, we must fight uh, this, this threat to our ecology, and we must have women and villagers all over Kenya planting trees. And the foresters laughed at her and said, no, it takes government foresters to plant trees. And when Gard Matai did not listen, she is the woman who did not listen. And over 20 years, her unschooled village women, who were laughed at by the foresters, have planted 30 million trees. Wangari has been beaten, has been jailed for her protest against deforestation in her country. And when Anna and I were there in the year 2000, we thought that her movement, the Green Belt movement, looked pretty shaky. Its danger funder was pulling out. And I realized that it could all fold. We left, and as soon as we got home, we got emails that she was back in jail. We wrote letters to the president, to the paper. We were very worried. Within a year, the Moy government was up for election with its hand-appointed uh, successor, and Wangari decided to run for a seat in parliament. And we get an email from her daughter saying, my mom beat her nearest opponent 50 to 1. <laughs> And women are dancing in the streets of Nairobi. And then we got another email sometime later saying, and my mother has been appointed Deputy Minister of the Environment. And she's part of writing a new constitution that is putting respect for animals and plants into our constitution. Well, <clears throat> soon um, it came around, and I, some of you know where this is headed. But in October of last year, when Gard was out with her constituency, having, been, uh, having won the seat in Parliament, he was out in the village and her cell phone rang. And she did not know that she was even in the running, but she was told that she had just won the Nobel Peace Prize. And the first thing, I mean, a friend who was with her said, first thing when Gard is dead is we won. And the second thing she said is, I didn't know anyone was watching. So as we walk with our fear, we don't know who's watching. But what Wangari teaches me is that it's not possible to know what's possible. That is the lesson of Wangari in my life. Since it is not possible to know what's possible, since the stories that I write about in Hope's Edge and Democracy's Edge, I could never have counted on or even given the smallest chance of probability of success when I was my daughter's age. And now they offer promising lessons to the world. It's not possible to know what's possible. So I will end with the scene of getting off of a, of a van in rural Kenya and being greeted by all of these Kenyan women coming out, singing and dancing and greeting Anna and me in their colorful garb but with a white t-shirt. 
And on this white t-shirt was the slogan that sort of says it all about what I'm talking about tonight. It is the slogan of the Kenyan Green Belt Movement, and all it says is, as for me, I've made a choice. Thank you. I would like to wrap up this edition of Ear to the Ground with a few comments from Evan Schmeling and Lois Nash. They are rural residents of Minnesota's Dodge County who have spent three years fighting the establishment of a factory dairy operation in their community. It was recently announced that the proposed dairy project is on hold indefinitely, which is a major victory for Schmeling, Nash, and their neighbors. These people attended meetings, gathered research, collected petition signatures, and wrote letters to fight this dairy, which, if built, would have been one of the largest such operations in the state. LePay wrote about these residents in Democracy's Edge as a prime example of living democracy. After her November 18th talk, Schmeling and Nash presented LePay with a framed photograph of the citizens confronting participants in a corporate agriculture tour of their county. I'm Evan. This is Lois. We're from Dodge County, and uh, we were... Blessed to be a part of uh, one day with uh, Francis Morlapay, and that's that's really something when you think about her and being able to stand up here and talk at the same place as her. It's quite humbling, and thank you very much. Anyway, we've had some things going on in Dodge County there that uh, have pretty much been noticed all over the state. And it has come from the the want to start up a dairy there that was even much bigger than what they had proposed when they came into this area. They came in and they wanted three dairies that were actually bigger than the one that they were even proposing toward the end. But it got to be that it was really scary for the citizens and uh, People started to talk, and one of the first things we did was we contacted Land Stewardship Project, and uh, they were very helpful. They, uh, they, they told us about things that we had rights to that we didn't know about. Most of us are pretty much ordinary citizens, you know. We don't, we don't do this every day. And when this, when this comes knocking on your door, you need help. And we found it in Land Stewardship Project. And uh, myself, I think when all the, the smoke clears and the dust settles, there's only one thing that's important, and that's how we treat each other. It's, it's what happens. And when something happens to you, what do you do then? And this is where democracy comes in. It's our ability, and I think it was given to us when this country was formed, it's our ability to stand up and be heard, and uh, that's exactly what happened. And especially, especially in Ripley Township, where uh, Lois is from, she was on the battlegrounds from day one. I don't know how many hours she spent on phones, or how many miles she spent driving, she got petitions, I think twice, her and another, three, three, three times. times. And uh, they met this head on. 
And at one point, the promoters of this large dairy brought in a bunch of so-called experts, and they were showing them everything that's good about all this. And the last thing they did is they took them by bus to this location where this proposed dairy would be. And Lois and a crew of people met them head-on with signs, tractors, vehicles. And she has a picture of that here today that she'd like to present to uh, Francis Moore LePay. <laughs> That wraps up Ear to the Ground's three-part series on living democracy. If you'd like to learn more about Frances Moore LePay and her work, please visit www.democraciesedge.org. That's www.democraciesedge.org. And remember, you can hear the first part of her speech in the second installment of Ear to the Ground. This podcast is a new endeavor for the Land Stewardship Project, and we'd like to hear from you. You can send your comments, criticisms, and suggestions to me, Brian DeVore, at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. That's bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. You can also get me on the horn at 612-729-6294, 612-729-6294. A special thank you goes out to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician and LSP staff member who provided Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a very special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.